Hello, 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 and welcome to the ninth official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today, we're going to be talking about the ride-sharing company Uber and the economics behind their business. Now, this issue is particularly fascinating to me because I'm a big fan of the ride-sharing concept. This is as increased competition puts established players on edge and forces them to improve their services or risk losing out. Moreover, Uber allows for flexible work for many individuals while also improving the efficient use of assets as underutilized cars are put to work. On its face, therefore, Uber is a big win for the economy. Passengers get better service and cheaper rides, drivers can work part-time without having to invest in costly licenses, and the economy as a whole is more productive. Now, as it turns out, Uber is also incredibly popular among investors who have contributed around $15 billion in funding, putting the value of the company at around $69 billion US dollars. Now, this private funding has enabled Uber to grow at an alarming rate, where it now operates in over 75 countries with multiple service offerings for customers. On the back of this, gross bookings, which is the amount that the company receives from customers before paying out the amount due to drivers, grew to $20 billion in 2016, more than double the amount for 2015. Net revenue for this period also jumped to a staggering $6.5 billion. However, let us not forget that underneath the growth and optimism is a messy, messy reality fraught with many difficulties. On the legal front, Uber is the target of hundreds of lawsuits due to its aggressive practices in different markets. Elsewhere, the company also faces many public relations problems, where recently a former Uber engineer blogged about the sexual harassment she received at the company, and where founder Travis Kalanick was recently filmed on tape berating a driver. Finally, Uber has also severe internal problems, as as evidenced by the number of high-ranking executives leaving the company, including founder Travis Kalanick himself. Underscoring and perhaps reflecting all these difficulties is the fact that since founding in 2009, Uber has yet to record a single profitable year, with losses continually growing. In fact, with net losses of $2 billion in fiscal year 2015 and $2.8 billion in fiscal year 2016, Uber now holds the unique title of being the most highly valued private company in the world while simultaneously having the highest losses ever recorded by any startup in history. Now, this piqued my curiosity. So what is actually going on in Uber's operation? How are they able to lose so much cash and still be operational? I mean, who is paying for these losses? So today's episode will be taking a hard look at the economics behind the ride-sharing giant and its prospects for the future. Because Uber is a private company and does not release publicly audited financial data, a large part of the analysis will be influenced by Hobart Huran, a 40-year veteran in the transportation industry, and his five-part report on the economics of Uber for the website Naked Capitalism. It is this report that has inspired me to do this episode, and if you are interested, you can check it out through the link in the description. Now, as a starting point, I think it would be good to describe the model of the traditional taxi company and later contrast it with Uber's own business model. So according to Huran and his report, there are four major cost components when operating a traditional taxi company. First one being 
driver compensation, which includes the likes of uh, take-home pay and any benefits they must cover. Secondly, you have fuel and fees directly related to passenger service, which includes airport tolls, cell phone expense, credit card fees, etc., etc. Third, you have vehicle ownership and maintenance. And fourth, you have corporate overhead and profit, which goes towards you know dispatching costs or branding and marketing and so on. Further, detailed cost data from taxi companies in several major U.S. cities have shown that for every dollar earned from a customer, around 58% goes to the first component of driver take-home pay and benefits, 9% goes to fuel and direct fees, 18% goes to vehicle costs, and the remaining 15% goes to corporate overhead and profit. So, from the cost data alone, a few things are immediately apparent. Firstly, the taxi industry is incredibly competitive, seeing as how the profit margins are very, very slim. So the way you can think about this is that whatever goes towards a corporate overhead and profit, 15% of each passenger dollar minus whatever, whatever it takes to cover corporate expenses is what is what you get as a profit. And you take this figure divided by the by the revenue that Uber gets, that's your profit margin. So this figure is already very, very slim for a traditional taxi company. So secondly, in a traditional taxi company, around 67% of each dollar paid by passengers goes to the driver since his remuneration includes driver compensation and fuel and fee expense of 58% and 9% respectively. In contrast, 33% of each dollar earned goes to vehicle maintenance back-end operations, and profit, which is channeled from the driver to the company through the mechanism of the leasing fee for the vehicle. Now, how is Uber's business model different from that of the traditional taxi company? Well, the first key difference here is that since Uber does not actually own any vehicles, the ownership and maintenance fees are actually borne by the driver instead of the company. Therefore, the 18% in vehicle costs is transferred through the driver, and the driver now makes up 85% of each dollar owned. Also, rather than a leasing fee to channel income to the company, Uber takes a direct cut from each passenger dollar received. So what is the significance of this? Well, firstly, this could lead to a significant misunderstanding. After all, since Uber drivers don't pay a leasing fee, it may appear to them that they have earned a higher gross amount. But after they have factored in the additional cost of vehicle ownership, they may find that they have actually earned a lot less. So, if Uber drivers have to pay more out-of-pocket to provide the taxi service, why are so many drivers actually switching over to Uber? Now, this can be explained by two factors. Firstly, if you have driven an Uber before, you would be aware of the number of incentives that the company has in place to attract new drivers. For example, in Singapore, there is currently an incentive called the Sure Win Rewards that promises a guaranteed $8,000 in income in your first month if you have completed more than 125 trips per week, as long as you do it using a rental car from Uber Singapore's subsidiary, Lion City Rentals. These incentives attract new drivers because it increases the perception of reward for driving with Uber rather than with a traditional taxi company. Most notably, these driver incentive programs also contribute to the second factor, which is that Uber uses what Huran calls, quote, strategic misinformation, end quote, to bring in new drivers. 
One example that shows this is how Uber claims that the median income for UberX drivers in New York is more than $90,000 a year. Now, such a claim is clever because the relatively high figure entices people to become Uber drivers while also downplaying the fact that they have to pay more out of pocket. The sinister part of this kind of misinformation is that for one, such claims have never been proven true, and that more importantly, it takes advantage of former traditional taxi drivers. This is as the drivers did not have to worry about the true cost of vehicle ownership since it was handled by the company. They thus will be hit doubly hard when they find that their income isn't as high and that the costs are significantly greater. Now, having gone through the structure, we are now partly able to explain the massive losses that the company accrues. Since driving with Uber is more costly than driving a traditional taxi, Uber spends millions and millions in incentives and rewards programs to attract new drivers. However, a much more clearer picture emerges once you include the demand side or the relatively lower fees that Uber charges passengers relative to traditional taxis. In an article for Business Insider, Sarah Silverstein finds that Uber fares are cheaper than taxi fares in most major U.S. cities. While this does not take into account the possibility of surge pricing during peak hours, note that Uber also has incentives for passengers as well, which in the short term at least, reduces gross fares taken by the company even more. In fact, Huran even accuses Uber of deploying a strategy of predatory pricing to beat out competitors by un- undercutting fares so that they can win market share. Looking at the limited data provided by Uber for the fiscal year 2015, it is really easy to see why. So in that year, Uber revenue, which is the amount that passengers gave uh, up front minus the amount that uh, Uber paid out to their drivers, amounted to $1.396 billion while net losses were $2.002 billion. With a little bit of math, it is not hard to figure out that corporate expenses for that year were $3.398 billion, or that, shockingly, Uber only earned 41% of their corporate expenses in fiscal year 2015. Now think about this, right? If a traditional taxi company were to earn just 41% of their corporate expenses, they would likely be out of business. I mean... How is Uber able to be operational with such a model? Well, the answer lies in the massive funding that it gets from investors. This funding is what allows Uber to run net losses each year and still grow at a tremendous pace. Essentially, the benefits and rewards that both drivers and passengers currently receive are not through the merit of Uber's business model, but through subsidies from its investors. Now, to be sure, It is not uncommon for a startup to incur heavy losses during its growth period. As Huran points out, Amazon lost $1.4 billion in 2000 during their early days. However, we should note that Uber's unprofitability is unprecedented, based both on the amount of the loss as well as the timing. For instance, while Amazon's losses of $1.4 billion were significant, it was based on $2.8 billion of revenue thereby resulting in a profit margin of negative 50%. Uber, in contrast, lost $2.002 billion on revenue of $1.396 billion, which led to a shocking profit margin of a negative 143%. On the aspect of timing, we can look to the social media giant Facebook 
and find that at the same five-year point in its starting history, it was already achieving 25% profit margins. Moreover, what's even more worrying is that unlike Amazon or Facebook, it is unclear if Uber is able to scale as effectively. This is based on the nature of the transportation industry itself. As pointed out by Huran, if Uber is to achieve tremendous levels of scale, it has to be able to find productivity improvements in its cost components, or in other words, to find ways to provide more of their service at a lower cost. This is impossible for the cost component of driver compensation, as each additional ride cannot be provided without an additional driver. Note, however, that this is for the meantime and assumes that Uber does not figure out a way to implement driverless technology. Also, reducing driver compensation will not bode well in the long term. This is evidenced by drivers responding negatively to Uber, reducing their share of compensation from each passenger dollar from around 80% to 70% recently. Now, the same productivity limitations are also found in the cost components of fuel and fees and vehicle ownership and maintenance. For the former, fuel consumption will always go up when the number of rides go up, such that no cost improvements are attained. For the latter, Huran points out that centralized management of the vehicle ownership and maintenance costs, as in the traditional taxi operator, is actually more efficient than the decentralized model of Uber. This is as the traditional taxi operator may be able to get better rates of insurance or financing for their fleet of cabs rather than the individual gets for his own car, meaning again that increasing the number of Uber drivers will not actually reduce the cost of vehicle ownership. The final component of corporate cost and corporate profit is perhaps the most significant. This is as unlike the traditional operator, whose corporate costs are tied down to their dispatch systems or their head office, Uber wildly overspends in this category. For instance, if you consider how Uber subsidizes both passenger fares and driver income to attain growth, then expanding into new markets will involve increased incentive spending. Furthermore, unlike a traditional taxi operator, Uber has to spend on software development and research and development to come up with new service offerings, including funding a department to focus on self-driving vehicles. To make matters worse is the amount Uber spends on legal expenses. As mentioned earlier in this podcast, Uber's aggressive practices constantly invite costly legal problems. A rough overview can be found through a CNN article titled, quote, Uber's never-ending stream of lawsuits, end quote. Among these include disputes with drivers over their employment status, you know, whether they're contractors or employees, disputes with passengers over safety issues, over multiple cases of uh, driver assault or rape, and disputes with government over issues of licensing and background checks. These legal battles are significant in that they cost Uber millions in settlement fees, but also millions more in legal and lobbying costs. All this points to a very, very bleak outlook for Uber and its path for profitability. Considering its hefty cost structure relative to traditional taxi companies and the limited avenues of productivity growth within its business, it is unclear how Uber plans to sustainably run their business without the aid of external funding subsidies provided by investors. After all, 
These investors are the ones who pumped in $15 billion to subsidize Uber's growth, and they will not continue doing this forever, and eventually some other stakeholder, either drivers or consumers, will have to bear the brunt of the higher costs. Now, drivers have already begun to get a feeling of this as they have borne some of the costs when Uber recently reduced the share of driver compensation from rider fares. When Uber has successfully undercut and driven out its remaining competitors, how much more will passengers have to pay for their rides to make up for the billions in subsidies they currently receive? Now, once they have reached this point, will Uber have any competitive advantage to keep its drivers and passengers coming back? So given the analysis of the economics of Uber, it would seem like that there is no hope for the future of the business. However, I'm actually a little more optimistic than Huran on this front. Of course, while Huran's experience and analysis is incredibly valuable, without a detailed cost breakdown, it is actually quite difficult to affirm. Noticeably, this is evident in how Uber's results for 2016 and correspondingly that of quarter 1 of 2017 do not corroborate with Huran's claims. In fact, where Huran predicted no improvements in Uber's profit margin, the company actually posted revenue of $6.5 billion with losses of $2.8 billion. This is important as it shows significant improvements in profit margin, jumping from negative 143% in 2015 to just minus 43% in 2016, even though the losses are still enormous. This trend has continued in the first quarter of 2017, where Uber posted losses of $708 million on revenue of $3.4 billion for a margin of minus 21%. Or in other words, half of the prior year's revenue at only a quarter of the prior year's losses. These financial results are therefore puzzling given Huran's claims that there will be no avenue for productivity or margin improvement. So how would Huran respond to this? Well, Huran might respond to this discrepancy by pointing out that the 2016 figures provided by Uber do not include the losses on their failed attempt at entering the Chinese market. However, while taking these additional losses into account might worsen the figures, the China losses would have to be in the region of around $6.5 billion in order to get profit margin numbers of minus 143%. Since this is highly, highly unlikely, the signs of improvement in the profit margin figures still persist. The more plausible explanation, in my view, is that Huran severely underestimated how much the legal fees or market development costs played into Uber's losses. After all, at some point, governments will you know, begin to figure out how to deal with ride-sharing companies, and Uber will eventually stop trying to expand which means that at some point in the future, they will have much, much less in legal liability and market development expenses. Also, while Huran is correct that taxi operators are better able to achieve, to achieve economies of scale in purchasing cars or insurance, he completely ignores the potential economies of scale for Uber in other areas such as consumer and ride data, areas that can form the basis of Uber's competitive advantage in the future and which allows the company to improve its service offerings. Moreover, while Huran is right to be critical of Uber's dependency on investor subsidies from a business sustainability standpoint, it is these very subsidies that are providing the benefits to the economy. 
After all, without the funding, Uber most likely would have had to take a radically different approach to growth, resulting in slower expansion to different markets, lesser rewards programs, and higher fares to passengers. I mean, sure, the company is losing billions, right? But they, at the moment, it appears that the bulk of it is being paid for by the investors. From a different perspective, and I mean a really radically different perspective, you could almost say that what Uber is currently doing is, you know, the market's form of wealth redistribution. I mean, where the rich or the investors actually subsidize the benefits to the other stakeholders, you know, such as the passengers or the drivers. So, in closing, I just want to re- reiterate the point that, you know, coming from a libertarian or a from a or a free market advocate, I am a big fan of the concept of ride sharing and the benefits that can be accrued to the economy and that can come out of it since it provides competition against entrenched players. Ultimately, even as Uber faces criticism for the manner in which it deals with governments or with drivers, additional competition in the taxi space can only be good for consumers and for economic productivity. However, in the, even in the most optimistic light, you cannot ignore the obvious stain in Uber's business, with revenues that cannot cover costs, with limited productivity improvements available, and with the massive legal and corporate challenges it currently faces. The business is basically, you know, currently a cash-burning machine that is surviving only because investors are willing to subsidize its growth. This is not all grim, however. As financial results in 2016 and quarter one of 2017 show massive, massive improvement. And because the subsidies have allowed Uber to provide substantial benefit to consumers and producers alike, perhaps once governments start to adapt to their sharing economy, once Uber implements reforms to its corporate image and its corporate culture, and once growth has hit its critical mass, that we will finally witness the company turning a profit. And with that comes the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from today's show. As usual, if you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or leave a rating and review. You can follow the social media pages of the Economical Rise podcast at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to follow up on the latest shows or leave any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. And you can go to the website at www.economicalrisepodcast.com for additional follow-up content on prior episodes. Again, thank you for listening. This has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rise Podcast. I hope you tune in next week, wherever here we serve the grains of capitalism.